Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we thank you for this uh, special text. We pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes and our minds to understand uh, just what this means to us. We give you thanks for this and for all of your many graces in our lives. In Christ's name, amen. When you you read the Bible, especially when you're young or when you're a new convert, uh, it is appropriate to begin at the beginning. If you're like me, I, I became a Christian at 19, and so I began reading the Bible, and it, Genesis was pretty easy. But you run into some dry spells fairly quickly when you get into the latter part of Exodus in the building of the tabernacle, and in Leviticus with all the laws about animal sacrifice that we don't do anymore. But yet, this being right here, it's really nice that it's in the first chapter, I think. I mean, because any newbie to the Bible is going to have read Genesis chapter 1. Anybody who's ever attempted to read the Bible will have likely read Genesis chapter 1. And that's why God put it there. Because he knows we like to start at the beginning, and people start at the beginning. They might not finish, but they've read this. And then we get only 26 verses in, and hopefully anybody that's tried to read the Bible has gotten at least to Genesis 1.26, and we read these words. They're just amazing. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. We know intuitively that this is extremely important. And it's so simple, it's stated so simply, that I think it's also, perhaps, easy for us to think that we understand it. Yet, it's not that easy to understand. Whenever you really assess your understanding of something, what's the metric? What's the measure by which we know if we understand something? You teach it. Bill knows that. He's a teacher. You teach something. If you teach it, then you understand it because you have to study it. You think you understood it. I thought I understood it, but then I go to study it, and I find all these things that I never knew, that I didn't know were issues. Now, maybe some of them aren't, but I wanted to share at least some of them with you. But now first, before we get to that, I want to, I want to talk about briefly the previous 25 verses, just quickly. Dogs, cats, cows, sheep, elephants, giraffes, tigers, lions, bears, Whales, marlin, tuna, caterpillars, birds, robins, eagles, vultures. God made all of these after their kind. Every one of them after their kind. And then he got to this verse and he said, let us make man in our image. So see, when God created everything else, even plants, He had a template in his head. 
Now, you know I'm speaking anthropomorphically. We know God doesn't have a head like us, do we? But yet, He imagined and He created, and that's exactly what He created. He created what He saw in His mind, in His imagination. He is inventive. He created these things all like He... Stegosauruses, Tyrannosauruses, I forgot about the dinosaurs. The dragons. How could I forget about the dragons and the behemoth? But so see, God created all of these things after that kind that he had in his mind, but with man, he didn't do that. He patterned us after himself. He is our template. That's amazing. We are images of God walking the earth. Humans fill the earth. It's hard to believe we're that special. And you have to ask yourself, how can this possibly be? How can we be images of God walking the earth? Jesus rebuked people in his day. They were wanting to stone him because he called himself God. He says, does not Scripture say that you are gods? You you have to admire Jesus. I mean, just his audacity to strike at the heart of what... Knowing that it's a little bit different how he's saying it, but yet he's just so bold in, in confronting people with Scripture, forcing them to reckon with it, forcing them to read it and pay attention to its reality. And so, see, he was telling them, you don't understand. You don't understand something so basic as was introduced in Genesis chapter 1. And you have the audacity to attack me. I mean, he just gave it back to them. (laughs) So you have to admire Jesus, I mean, just for the audacity. I mean, he was a man. He's a man's man. He doesn't take this stuff lying down. He, he, when he is attacked, he attacks back. And that, I admire that in him. We should admire that in him. Now, even in the unfallen state how can we possibly image God? Now, we can relate after the fall. Well, now it's gone, right? But no, it's not gone. It's still there. So, in their purity, they imaged God. And in our impurity, we image God. That's even more remarkable. Now, some of you, I won't say which ones, but some of you, have taken the hermeneutics class. And I can safely say that many of you are behind. <laughs> I didn't take it. I, I honestly, I mean, I'm up here, I know, and I should really understand hermeneutics, but it's boring. It really is. I have a big book and I have a little book. I haven't read either one of them. <laughs> now, maybe that shows, I know. But uh, the next class... It's called The History of Theology. Now, I'm very interested in that one. That one sounds really cool. So I might take it. We'll see. But History of Theology, you can imagine, and I, I don't know, but I think this is probably what it will be. It will be the history of the development, probably of the doctrine of the Trinity, how we came to understand that God is three persons in one supreme being. It will probably address Jesus as the God-man, as having these two natures, and then obviously all of the uh, means by which those truths were realized, the various councils and who the opponents were and all that stuff. 
That's what I think. I don't know. It could be totally different, but that's what I think they're going to do. I don't think they're going to spend an instant on the image of God, on us being the image of God, because it's really not a well-studied theological doctrine. I mentioned last week when I talked about angels, that angels is really an understudied doctrine, and I believe the image of man is as well. And I believe it's because we think we know it, just intuitively. And yet, as theologians get into study of it, they go all over the place. It gets crazy. Now, I want to begin with image and likeness. These are two words that are key. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, we know the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so, to understand one text, it's best if you just find where else similar concepts are employed. And you then see what circumscribes this, what covers what's possible and what's impossible. So, when you do that with this doctrine, you find that there are very few explicit references to us being made in the image and likeness of God. There are four in the Old Testament, three of them in Genesis and one in Psalms. There are six in the New Testament, and now I'm speaking of man only. Now, we have a few other references in the New Testament about Jesus being in the image of God, but the ones, there are some that involve only man as the image, some that involve only Jesus as the image, and some that involve both. So I've, I'm only counting the ones that involve man to some degree, six of them. So really, by my count, we have like 10 verses or sections of verses that even refer to man being made in the image of God. And so that seems few. Now, there are probably other inferences or implications, and I'm not saying those. I'm just saying explicit references. Now, in a book that I just, I was at Ames yesterday. I took my wife and, and Mike and Hannah over to participate in a Taekwondo tournament, and I was really reluctant. I, I was wishy-washy. I told them a week ago, no, I'm not going to go. I'm going to stay back and study. But then I thought, well, I should really take them. I can chauffeur them over, and then I can do my prep there. And so I did. So I went to the Brugger's. I dropped them off. I went to the Brugger's. Oh, it's just horrible, tiny, cramped. Asked a man where the library was. He pointed me to it, and I was there. They had a free bookshelf. So now I'm supposed to be working on my sermon, but I'm looking at their free bookshelf. But they had a book that was called the Image of, or I'm sorry, Creation and Redemption, and it involved this about the image of God. Now this guy's kind of liberal, but yet it's just like God to do that, isn't it? I mean, here I am slacking off, looking through this bookshelf, and he Creation and Redemption. Oh, oh look at this! This is so cool. So I ended up pulling that book off and finding the sections that, oh, the theological books are nice because they have indexes, scriptural indexes. So if you want to see if they referenced a verse, all you have to do is flip to the back and see where it is. So it's really handy. But so that man used a, a few references to Genesis 1, 26, 27, 28. So now he spoke to this in depth, and I'd already read a few papers too, about this difference between uh, image and likeness. And this is from one of the papers that I read. The Old Testament references to the doctrine of image of God in man are tantalizing in their brevity and scarcity. Boy, uh, they're right. It's like it just goes dormant. It's like nobody in Old Testament times even thought about the fact that they were made in God's image, and God didn't bring it to the foreground until Christ. 
So now, likeness, in my 10 verses that I mentioned, likeness is used alone twice. That's in Psalm 17, 15, and James 3, 9. Image is used alone, without likeness, six times. Genesis 9, 6, Romans 8, 29, 1 Corinthians 11, 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 49, 2 Corinthians 3, 18, and Colossians 3, 10. I'm saying these because I'm not going to get a chance to talk about them, but if you listen to the audio, maybe you can look them up and study them. Uh, Image and likeness together are used twice, here in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 5. So see, that is, to me, the best commentary then, the one other occurrence where both have been used. So the question is, are image and likeness synonyms in our text? Does likeness somehow qualify image? That's the question we're going to Genesis 1, uh, 5, 1 to answer. This is the book of the genealogy of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created the male and female and blessed them and called them mankind in the day they were created. And Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. And if Seth were here, I would tease him. After he begot Seth, the days of Adam were 800 years and he had sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. But you see what it says. Adam begot a son in his own likeness after his image. Now, you could say those are synonyms, and I could agree with you. They mean very much the same thing. But it does say, in his own likeness, after his image. So there are kind of two different statements. And there is a phrase that, it, that uh, the, in the book that I found in Ames, it says this. The double expression, in our image, after our likeness, must then mean after our pattern, so that he may resemble us. And isn't that how we tend to view our children? They are patterned after us. They resemble us. My wife and some of the ladies in the church, I've heard them talking about, oh, you know, this one has that nose and this one has those ears and this one. You know, our children do resemble us. They are in our likeness. So not only do they have our image, and by image it's like humanity, But then, too, there is this closer thing, this likeness. There is a distinction in Scripture between soul and spirit. Largely, they're used synonymously. We believe there is only body and soul or spirit, soul and spirit being used synonymously. Some people hold to a three-view, but it's very rare anymore. But there are nuances of difference when you're talking about soul or spirit. And I believe the same thing is true here. Image and likeness can be regarded as synonyms and are in Scripture, when they're used individually, but when used together, the one is kind of commenting on the other. Now, before we get into what it's like, what this image is that we are made of, that we are made in the image of God, what does that mean? Let's talk about some oddball things. Uh, and so there are always fringe views in, uh, in all these orthodox views. And uh, as I said, this has been around a long time, and there's, very, there's scant uh, material to reason from. And so people come up with various concepts, and then they try to justify them. I have six different views that I'll bring, and I'm going to try to get through this quickly, although probably not as quickly as I'd like or as should. First, the first oddball view is that the image pertains only to males, that females are excluded from this image. Now, there's actually biblical evidence to support this, and it's right here in our text, actually. Right here in Genesis 1, it says... Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, 
He created him. Male and female, he created them. And so some writers try to get that third clause and kind of separate it out from the image because image isn't referenced right there. And that isn't even the strongest case. Turn with me, if you want to, to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, starting at verse 7, reads, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. So it's like, oh, I need go no further. I've proved my point. Men are made in God's image. Women, unfortunately, are not. But see, and if I were to stop there, and as many people do, it's like I proved my point. Why go search for things that can disprove it? Well, because that's intellectually ethical and truthful, a la the communion meditation that Gary just shared. So see, if you have something you want to prove, it's not enough to prove it. Anybody could do that. You must seek out things that disprove it and deal with them in a rational ethical, truthful manner. So there are some things that, unfortunately, for people to hold this view, undermine that view. Uh, Genesis 9, for instance, where image is used again, where after they've gotten off the ark, uh, capital uh, punishment is instituted for mankind. We read this in verse, starting at verse 5. Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man. From the hand of man, every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And as for you, be fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth. See, not only, if women weren't made in the image of God, not only could they be killed without any effort, they could kill, I guess they're beasts, right? I don't know, they're somewhere in between, I guess. But they are not as responsible as man for their conduct. And so it seems that women can kill women, and men can kill women without any repercussions because they're not made in the image. Because it's definitely in the image of God that makes us human, that makes us like God, that makes us worthy of special treatment on this earth. Now, also, for you men that are thinking that, oh, this is odd, and women, of course, I'm sure you think it's even odder. But if you go to James chapter 3, verse 9, you read this. He's talking about the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless God our Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the similitude of God. Again, likeness. Likeness is similitude. So see, if we men wanted to be free to kill our wives without repercussions, we must also be able to tolerate whatever they say because they don't have to control their tongue. They're not made in the image of God. Therefore, they can say anything they want. So you men that might think that way. It's like, oh, no, you, you will be penalized. Maybe that leads to the murder, you know, or I guess it's not called murder, it's killing. But so anyway, it's to be silly, but I did find a guy that believes this. He runs a website called the Christian Polygamist website. So maybe he has many wives, and I should point out James 3.9 to him. I should send him an email. He shouldn't be complaining about his wives talking about him. So now, the next one, point two, and again, I've already taken too much time, but point two says this, and it's again about gender. Now it's this, that the image must include man and woman, that a man by himself is an incomplete image of God, a woman by herself is an incomplete image of God. This is Karl Barth, and if you're familiar with that name, uh, he's a German theologian that 
must have been brilliant, uh, but he's rather unorthodox in a lot of his views. And uh, so he holds to that, and he's attempted to defend that view. But you really need to go, go further than Genesis 5, where Seth is called in the image of Adam. And so, you, yes, you have uh, Adam, Eve involved in that, and yet as individuals, Seth is an in individual in the image of God. Regardless of how he came to be about involving man and woman, he himself is the image of God. Now, don't go too far, though, because while we discredit this narrow parochial view that it must be man and woman that together are the image of God, marriage still does image God. Friendship images God. The, the unity of the church images God. So, see, we are too narrow in our attempts at understanding what image truly means. And so I'll get a little bit more to that later, but I just wanted to point out that there is something referred to as the tyranny of the or, and that is you just present a false dichotomy. It's this or that, you know? Which do you like better, apple pie or cherry pie, you know? It's not as if I don't like one of those. I might love both of those, but I'm forced to choose, you know? Which child do you love more? Which one are you going to save if the boat starts sinking? You know what I mean? They're in different directions. You've got to, you know, those, those dilemmas. It's the tyranny of the oar. They're, they're forced upon us. And we then begin to think like that. And yet that's not the way we really have to think in many regards. We must think in terms of and. What is the broadest possible thing that this could mean? Only then do you winnow out things that don't make sense. Third, the image cannot include man's body. So, in other words, our corporeal existence cannot be a part of the existence uh, of this image of God. And so, see, this is not so much a fringe issue. There are probably a lot of theologians that hold to this. They really kind of dispense with the body as in any way being possible for us to image God. And uh, I think that's wrong. And, I, and I'll, I'll share with you some of uh, the arguments for why our bodies image God, how our bodies image God. And I believe this is just a carryover from Greek Platonic thought, where the body is just dead weight to, for our spirits to carry around on this earth. And one point that I would use to refute this is just the respect with which we do and should treat dead bodies. We don't call dead bodies it. We might refer to the dead body as the body, but yet we refer to them as Aunt Ethel or Uncle Bob we don't refer to the body as it. We don't just treat it like rubbish. No, this person has dignity, even though it's their body, their physical body that lies there, and their spirit has gone home to be with the Lord who gave it. So see, God gave both. He gave us that body and the spirit, and they really do belong together. Death is abnormal. So we do no credit to God by saying that his image in us cannot possibly involve our bodies. It does. Matthew 28, verse 6, the angel said to Mary, he is not here, he is risen. He was referring to Christ, Christ's body. She had just asked him, where have they taken him? She didn't say, where have they taken it or where have they taken the body? No, where have they taken Jesus? I want to see Jesus. I want to see his body. So, see, we still refer. Now, you might think that's just anachronistic, that we're just polite referring to people by their bodies as them. 
But no, no, this is biblical. As a matter of fact, uh, I preached on this a few years ago on cremation versus burial and the respect we really owe the body. Now, the next error is again related to the body. God must have a physical body too. And this is just a logical argument. If we image God, and you've talked me into including my body in that image, then God has a body. It's just simple deduction. And the Mormons have gone down that road. The phrase that I really like that that captures the essence of Mormonism is this. As we now are, he once was. As he now is, we one day will be. See, that captures the essence of what Mormons think about Jesus. He's a created God. We will be like him because he was once like us now. I mean, that's the essence of Mormonism. It doesn't deserve recognition as a Christian uh, sect. It's a cult. It should be a cult and remain a cult. Uh, The fact that Billy Graham has endorsed Romney and removed Mormonism from his website as being a cult is just egregious. Uh, Now, he's 93. I don't blame Billy Graham as much as I blame Franklin Graham. I mean, it's Franklin that will inherit this very shortly and probably already has been running that organization for quite a long time. But uh, just last year, I'd heard that Billy Graham had essentially repented of some of the ways in which he had minimized Christianity in his political endeavors over the last 50 years. Well, he's just knocked that one out of the park. I mean, whatever he did before is nothing compared to what they've done now. So as far as I'm concerned, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is no longer evangelistic. It's no, no, no longer an evangelical organization. Now, Scripture is, however, filled with anthropomorphic phraseology. We speak of God having arms, and I mentioned him having a head, uh, nostrils. He speaks about all the senses. Why does he do that? Why is Scripture filled with that? I'm sure skeptic and atheistic websites are filled with these as being evidence of either error, inconsistencies in Christians' views, or a diminishing of God, bringing him down to human level. But yet, why does God do that? Because he needs to. He needs to condescend to us, to communicate with us. We can't talk to God in some spiritual reality language. He's created our world. He created all of these senses that we enjoy. So if we think he lacks those, we're just being silly. Uh, I, I was asking my children this morning who the captain's name in the Pirates of the Caribbean, the first movie? Well, he's in all the movies. But not, not Captain Jack Sparrow, but the other guy, Barbarossa. Is, I think that's his name. But anyway, in the first movie, you kind of feel sorry for him, don't you? When he's watching Jack Sparrow throw that apple around, and it's so juicy and yummy, and he can't eat it because he's spiritual and he's this dead demon body. And I think some of us think of God like that. We pity God because God doesn't have a body like us by which he can enjoy things that we do. That's crazy talk. We, sure, we have an eyesight, but God sees everything. He doesn't need eyes to see everything. He gave us our eyes so we could be like him. He doesn't need to be like us and have eyes. He can see anything, smell, touch, taste, all of these he gave us. We have five, right? 
and, and some people try to say the sixth one, the ESP and all that. But how many does God have? How many senses does God have? I'm sure a lot more because he has those ESP things. He has the ability to control things with his mind, telekinesis. He has the ability to do so much more than we do. And we could describe those as senses. They're abilities that his body has. He only allows us to use this terminology so that we can relate to him. All this anthropomorphic talk is all just so that we can better understand who we are in his image. So now, God's spiritual senses include ours, exceed ours, and subsume ours. He is all that we are and more. He just didn't need a physical body. See, one of the other errors is that people feel that uh, we were templated after Jesus because Jesus was going to become a man, and so he's the perfect man. So therefore, what is in mind in Genesis 1.26 about being made in the image, it's already looking ahead to Jesus. But no, theologians point out, no, that's not what God is saying at all. Sure, we knew Jesus was going to come. God knew that. But that isn't the image. He, we were templated after him. It wasn't Jesus that was templated after him in the flesh, and then we're just these poor facsimile mimeographs that came along like a hundred staples and folds later. It's not like that. We were made in God's image. Now, the last two words uh, that I want to mention, there are two more uh, errors that I wanted to talk to you, fallacies. It doesn't relate to image and likeness. It relates to the, the uh, us and the our. So see, let us... Make man in our image. And these, I think, are very interesting. I'd never heard these before. The first one says that this. Now, the Jews, of course, would have uh, pursued this because why is this plural here? Why is this plural pronoun us here? So the Jews posited that, that God is referring to his angelic council, this heavenly council. And, and it's in Scripture. I mean, you can see there are these principalities and authorities that are with God at the throne. So they're saying that when God says, let us, that he's including them. But there's a problem. Let us make man in our image. So the us and the our go together. The Jews have an answer for that. The angels recuse themselves from being part of that image because they're so much less than God and they didn't really belong there. So it's just this weird, odd way of viewing that. But, you know, the Jews got very creative in deciding how to uh, explain certain things. And you have to admit, that's an A for creativity. Uh, the next one is even more interesting. It is, I have never heard this. It is so bizarre. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And then if you go to chapter 2 in Genesis... Uh, verse 7, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. So see, there are two things involved here. There's the earth and the dust, and there's the God breathing in the nostrils the breath of life. So see, this is just God talking out loud to the earth. Let us make man in our image. So the us is involving the earth that he's just created. It's very creative. I mean, you, you really have to admire people that can be that creative at, at, at positing these things. I'm not going to attempt to refute that. I, I might even accept it. I might even adopt that. No, just kidding. So now, those are six fallacies, uh, fallacious ways of looking at this image. 
Now, I want to get to the good ways. Um, I read several people and books and things, and it is interesting. This has gone through the history of theological thinking. Um, I, I, I could bore you with lots of details about the early, like Augustine, Irenaeus, uh, Athanasius, you know, and up to the Reformers and on beyond as to where their emphases were, how they viewed this. But that's you know, neither here nor there. What's important is now, what is the kind of the main prevailing Orthodox view? Two, two facets of this, aspects of God's image in us, and they are our words, resemblance and representation. So in other words, we were made to resemble God and to represent God. And both are really here in Genesis 1, 26 uh, through 28. So now, resemblance, I can give you this one sentence. Resemblance is how we are like God in form. Representation is how we are like God in action. So they're two totally different thoughts. It's one about our being, and it's another about our actions and our duties. So how are we like God in form, in resemblance? Five ways. Now, these are really common. I'm going to breeze through them because these are the prevailing way that man has been compared to God through the centuries. Moral character. And that includes ethical thought and behavior, the understanding that there is a right and a wrong. That's a rather uh, man and God-like thing. Now, this is very different from the animals. I mean, there have been studies that have attempted to determine whether animals know right from wrong, and they're not proving it. Animals don't know right from wrong. All they know is, I want it, I'm bigger than you, I'm taking it. So they know how to get what they want in that fashion. Now, there are repercussions for that, and some of them learn that the hard way. Two, social relations. And I mentioned this earlier with marriage. There is the one and the married, the one and the many. You see, and this is one way that we fundamentally differ from angels, and I covered that last week. Man is designed to be even uh, come about through the many. We are one as an individual. We are many in community. That's in marriage, in family, in church, in, in government, in society, everything. We humans aggregate into cities and counties and states and nations. And so we are, by our nature, not islands, as the song goes. You know, We are not like the Simon and Garfunkel song. I am an island, I'm a rock, you cannot touch me. So see, we must depend on other humans. We interact with them. We relate with them. No man or woman could survive without them. I remember from years ago, there was a study done in Russia where they intentionally did not touch children in orphanages, and they would all die. Children thrive on human touch, and those that were left untouched in their study group just passed away. So see, God has made us to be fundamentally different and integrated like this, and angels totally different. That's the one thing, really, that we're so fundamentally different from angels on. The third, spiritual awareness. We have a sense of purpose. And see, that's what, as a young person, that's what you're seeking. You want a sense of purpose and meaning in your life. See, that's this spiritual awareness. Uh, I forget who coined that phrase, but God has placed eternity in their hearts it's even that book about the missionary. So see, God has placed eternity in our hearts, regardless of whether we're here in the West or whether we're on some tiny island that's never seen other races. We know we exist for a purpose that is greater than what we can see. 
And that compels us. It impels us to seek it. There is this mental ability. And this is the one that is probably the biggest, the most common. We can reason. We can think. We can problem solve. We can discover, plan, learn. All of that is regarding human faculties of, that are so much more advanced than the animals. What's interesting, though, is that animals can often do all these things. And atheists will kind of make much of that. But uh, Wayne Grudem has an excellent illustration in his book. He says, yes, but can, he tell his, but can that gorilla tell his two-year-old to go out to the garage, Sonny, and get me the, the, uh, the uh, hammer that's right next to your little red toolbox? You know, I mean, that little two-year-old knows enough human language and probably has never seen some of this stuff even. Yet they can figure it out because they've got this whole working model of how everything works that animals lack. I mean, animals don't come anywhere near. All they can do is memorize rote things. But still, it's a beautiful thing. Like Coco, uh, Tabitha uh, was into psychology in school, and she still has a book about this big gorilla that befriends this little kitten. And the gorilla names the kitten because he has these, like, 20-some words or whatever that he knows. And so he had a ball, and since the kitty often was in a shape of a ball, he named it Ball. But see, that shouldn't scare us as humans. Don't argue with evolutionists and atheists about that. Just enjoy it. Enjoy the fact that God has blessed us with an animal world that can emulate man in this tiny way by which we can recognize that they deserve respect too. We want respect. Animal, the animal kingdom deserves respect. That's part of our job. And that's partly why I'm preaching this series. It's about us taking seriously our job to husband this earth well. Okay. Now we have uh, the last one, and that is the physical distinctions, you know, our senses of taste and all that. And I've already uh, talked about that. But I wanted to bring up one more point. Uh, In the last few weeks, there's been this big doping scandal about Lance Armstrong. And he's a bicyclist. He's won the Tour de France, I think, seven times or nine times. All of them, all of his awards have been taken from him. Because now, the doctor that he's been working through in Italy has been convicted, or, or, or at least uh, uh, accused, and hounded out of the sports industry for having done this really sophisticated doping uh, procedure where he was moving money around and laundering, and it was very sophisticated. But Lance Armstrong's caught up in that now. And see, the reason I bring it up is this. How many of you have ever wished that you had like eyes like an eagle? I know I have. I would like to fly like an eagle. There's even a song like that. See, we want what the animal kingdom has to offer, don't we? We want to be like them in some ways. We don't want everything like they have it, but yet some of the things are so cool. And yet, God has limited us in many ways. There are other critters that have better senses of smell by far, better Uh, eyesight by far, better hearing by far, why did God make man so lame in comparison? If we're the highest, the pinnacle of creation, shouldn't we have the best eyes, the best ears? My wife wishes I had better ears. (laughs) So see, why? Why did God do this? I think it fundamentally points at the difference between man and animals. That's how animals survive. They need those things. We can get by without a lot of stuff. I mean, we have blind people and we have deaf people, and they, they survive. We treat them well. In a, in a community, in an animal community, if it's defective, 
throw it out. You know, it gets left behind. You know, it's fodder for the lions now. Humans aren't like that. We're not to be like that. We are designed for dignity. We are designed after God. And we'll get to a little bit more of that in a minute. Now, that was all resemblance, form. How are we like God in form? And now we want to answer the question, how are we like God in action? We, and here I have to ask you to think differently. When we say, how do we image God? In what way is man like God? We always think of it from our perspective. But I want you to think of it from God's perspective, okay? So he's made this universe, he's made this world, he's made all of these critters, and then he's made man. And he's made us to be like him. What is it that he is doing with this world? What is his goal? There is an analogy to what God has done in the ancient world. When a king had such a vast kingdom that he couldn't possibly get around to all of it, he would have statues of himself made. And he would distribute them through his kingdom to show his subjects whose authority they were living under. And that's what God has done with us. We are the living, moving, breathing, acting images of God, statues of God upon the earth. And we are here for him. We reflect his rule and his creation of all things. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it gives every one of us dignity. It gives every one of us a meaning for why we exist. And yet, when there are billions of us, we might forget. But I tell you what, we never forget we're special. Those other seven billion might not really be all that special, but I'm pretty special. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about how one point whatever billion Indian and Chinese people can all be so special? I remember, uh, I forget who it was, but someone was saying that God must sure love the Chinese because he's made so many of them. And I think that's true. God's created a lot of us, and we're all made in his image. And so we must not think less of other people, other races, other people in whatever situation they're in. And what's interesting about this is that even those that are so degraded in the way that they image God, God expects us to treat with dignity. They might not be treating others with dignity or even themselves with dignity, but we are to treat them with dignity. So see, it's about your conduct. It's about my conduct. It's not about the unbeliever's conduct. It's us. Are we going to treat them with the dignity that they deserve because they are made in God's image? Now, the whole man is created in the image of God. Spirit, body, lock, stock, and barrel, it's all us. It's all one, Man and, male and female. There is no distinction. We men have no greater uh, uh, nobility on this earth than any woman. And one day, we'll see that in spades, I think, when we get up to heaven and are told just how badly we've treated women, perhaps, on this earth, or treated others that we regarded as beneath us. But man's role on this earth is unique, and it, it must be understood. And actually, Genesis 1 is a beautiful 
illustration of who man is, who each of us is. Because God said, let us make man so we know we're created, right? We can't get all uppity. We can't say that we're God. We're, we're, he calls us gods. We're his images, yes. But we are a part of this creation. So that should give us humility. We exist among billions of others, men and women. So see, they are equal to us. There is nobody that is beneath us in dignity. There is nobody that is above us in dignity. And yet, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion. So see, everything else in creation has been given to man. As I said, we should treat it with respect. We should do all that God commands us in treating that uh, creation with respect. But we should never elevate it beyond that which God has elevated it. All of these fallen man tends to distort and ignore. So we as Christians are the salt of the earth to remind the unbelievers that they are made in the image of God. They have all of these resemblances to God, and they are His representatives on earth. They either do that well or they do that poorly. But to the degree that this gets distorted, that we think we're God or that we think we're better than fellow humans, or that we think creation is better than us, or that we think creation is worthless, all of it gets us off. And so that's the purpose of this series, is to, is to focus on the fact that God has created us for a purpose. And so where I'm going next week is related to this. It builds on what we're talking about now. So we are under God, we are beside our fellow humans, and we are above creation. But all of this is like intention. It's all in accordance with God's Word. Now, there's one other, uh, one other point that I wanted to uh, close with, and that is that Psalm 8 is referred to as the best commentary on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. But the reason I didn't bring it up is that it doesn't use the words image or likeness. But I want to close with it because it is a, just a majestic illustration of why God has made us and who God has made us to be. Psalm 8, to the chief musician on the instrument of Gath, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this honor of being made in your image, and we do repent of past failures to treat uh, people with the dignity that they deserve, to treat you with the respect that you deserve, and to treat creation uh, in the way that you have called us to and commanded us to. 
Father, we do thank you for your word that is uh, so clear in directing us as to what we are to do. We give you thanks for it, Lord, and we give you thanks for the sacrifice of your son, that he is now in your perfect image, uh, walks this earth as your perfect image, and is our model uh, to which we are being conformed uh, through your work. We praise you now and uh, thank you for all of your blessings in his name. Amen.